Welcome to First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis, the birthplace of Congregational Humanism. We carry on that tradition of free thought today, dedicated to promoting a free search for truth, meaning, and justice. Our web address is firstunitarian.org. I'm David Breeden, Senior Minister. Welcome. Thanks a lot, choir and headless. <laughs> Our theme for October has been heritage, and uh, today I want to do the third bit of that, uh, although we definitely want to get to some other issues today. I want to, uh, uh, during this time, people say, well, what about the future? So we're going to get to the future, I hope. But uh, let's uh, look at the Articles of Incorporation. I've been talking about these. This is from 1881. Uh, and it talks about how they're going to form this congregation. And they were very specific about how they were going to do it. They were going to form an association where people without regard to theological differences may unite for mutual helpfulness in intellectual, moral, and religious culture and humane work. And as I mentioned the other day, uh, humane work, nowadays I think we would use the term social justice, uh, but you know the work... Uh, that is humane, is the whole idea of doing that. And this is long before, of course, this congregation becomes uh, actually humanist. So because the term was being used in other ways, it's in 1881. But humane work. But there is something that is interesting in our tradition that I definitely want to think about. And this is that uh, since I've been here, I've been here almost a decade now, uh, already, the number of nuns, people who are not choosing any religion, has doubled. It's gone from below a fourth to something around a third at this point, uh, probably a little above a third of people who are saying they have no religious affiliations. Now, the reason I say this is important in our tradition is that we've already been there. We have uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson back in the 1840s uh, who was saying, what have I to do with the sacredness of traditions if I live wholly from within? Why would I even bother to listen to any y'all or go to church for that matter? Because I have everything, I have all the spiritual energy that I need right here inside. And this is very much a transcendentalist part of our way of being. And we have to remember, it's, it's always been part, and it still is, we have people who would rather go visit the trees than visit uh, a assembly on any given Sunday morning, uh, right? So, but we're ready for that because we have been there. Now, my answer to the question of what they were trying to do in terms of their mutual helpfulness uh, comes from a, uh, a theorist by the name of Peter Block. He is the top, one of the top organizational development community uh, people out there, uh, and I've been teaching one of his books in one of my uh, courses. Uh, in his book, he says, uh, one of the books, Community, The Structure of Belonging, he says this, community is fundamentally an interdependent human system given form by the conversation it has with itself. The history, buildings, economy, infrastructure, and culture are products of the conversation and social fabric of the community. Uh, 
The built and cultural environment are secondary gains of how we choose to be together. Now reflect on that. An interdependent human system given form by the conversation it has with itself. An interdependent human system. And that all the building, the buildings and all the things that, have, that go into the archives, that's not it. It is the living conversation that started before the place was open and continues to this day, right? right? Emerson is, first of all, making the claim that the process itself is what makes things sacred. That's part of the tradition here. The process itself is what makes it sacred. We don't have some symbol around here that we're all, all going to go kiss and think it's sacred. We make the sacred. It is the process of making it sacred. That is what the transcendentalists are teaching us. Sacralization is a process. It's a process of making that sacralization, and the tradition itself makes that. At bottom, Emerson and Peter Block are pointing us toward the same conclusion. The din of conversation in the here and the now is all we ever have. That's it. We may have some great accolades from the past, and we do, but now, today, is what matters, according to Emerson. So, the fact is that you all have chosen to be here today. So, you're in on the plot, if you will. In this moiling morass we call reality, being here today together is a very special thing to be doing. Thank you. Nowadays, historians call that 1881 stuff the progressive era. And guess what? We don't live in a progressive era, do we? But guess what also? Our forebears knew that because progressivism is never popular. We catch on sometimes and we get some progressive things done. But progressivism is noisy. And noisy is never fun to a certain kind of people. Right? Right? And so, you know, there is this thing. We've got this tension that we do carry with us. The struggle for all to be free is a long and tough struggle. So, what is the now is my question. I ask, what is the now that tells us how the future is becoming? What is the now today that tells us what the future is becoming? It's a lot better than, oh, can we guess what the future planning is going to be? All right? And that's what I want to talk about today. What is the now that tells us how the future is becoming? And one of the questions is, how it's always been, how do we get people into the conversation? Do we have a headless answer? So, truthfully, the future could hold many things, but it is the now. Now I don't have a head. Maybe tomorrow I'll find it. <laughs> Truth be told, when we look at the now, the now has always been interesting because as soon as we experience it, it is already in the past. 
So we have to begin to constantly keep looking forward, not one step ahead, not just two, but leading with the love that we know that will help us think beyond. It requires imagination. It requires fantasy. It requires fearlessness. And in order to do that, who is missing from this space? What hearts and hands are missing? Not just what heads are missing. The voices are what matter, yes, but the hands matter too. It is not what, school, what schools you've come from. It has very little to do with what economic background you have, but how will you be in service to a future that requires for you to know your purpose now, to serve and be in relationship with those things that are different from you, things that do not look like you, speak like you, or cut from the same cloth? We must begin to create a bridge. This place should be a bridge that builds relationship, and not only relationship, but wholeness between humanity. Holding tensions that cannot often be held by those who only have one sight of a moral compass, but an intersection where peace and justice both work simultaneously. War is not fun. I know it well. But we would not know peace if we did not have war. And that is terrible to think from a Western point of view. But what would it look like if we all courageously operated in a practice of truth, reconciliation, and justice? I've mentioned before that when this congregation began, there were about 40,000 uh, people in the city of Minneapolis. And in 1881, about the most complex theological thing going on here was the difference between the sad Swedes and the happy Swedes. <laughs> Apparently, they couldn't go to the same building uh, to church. Uh, and someone will have to explain to, the, me, to the, this to me sometime. I understand Hinduism much better than I understand happy and sad Swedes. I'm just, you know, I, I just have to say. But uh, that is all to say that theological complexity is the reality. Everyone in town is not a Protestant or even a Christian anymore. Uh, far from it. And what we can do there is be that bridge because we do or our understanding of different religious views. Now, one of the interesting things is, you know, liberals have, white liberals have failed over and over again to figure out how to get people of color or anyone besides white people, happy and sad Swedes kind of, I think, yeah, uh, into our buildings or into our spaces. And this has been one of the great struggles of our time. I think I know why we have failed at that. And that is that, you know, we invite people to be, come in and be just like us, which is maybe even headless people know that's not good. This is challenging. This is a very challenging thing because let's just be real. 
If you expect for folk from other cultures to operate from a context in which they are unfamiliar, then they are, yes, decapitated. In a talk some time ago of great stories, of course, there was Procrustes, a Greek god who had a bed and you had to fit the bed. If you were too big for the bed, you would be chopped. If you were too small for the bed, you would be stretched out. There is something about the kind of humanism we experience that causes us to do a Procrustean experience to those outside of those that are different from us. We stretch them out, we cut them off, only to make them fit. How do your practices, your policies, your institutional framing hold them in the bed of comfort that they can show up authentically as them? The truth of the matter, Howard Thurman would say it best, I want to be me without making it uncomfortable for you to be you. I always say amen to that. I, I want to be me without making it uncomfortable to be you. And you know, one of my dreams, and uh, you know, I'll be long dead, but uh, you know, the conversation will go on, uh, is that this beautifully placed building will someday be the center for cutting edge humanist theology in all of its many forms. African American theology in humanism is not like white, uh, progressive humanism. They're different. They're different trees. They grew up in the same soil, but they're not the same. And we can help each other by trying to understand each other's ways of being, because liberation is the key for white, black, everyone. That's what we want. That's, that's the goal. Um, and the liberation for all will only, I think, go through the place where we realize how to stay in conversation with each other, even though maybe not in the same room, maybe, but in the same building. And so I think this someday may be the center for the humanist experience in Minnesota. Do you have any final words for us, Headless? I imagine that we will actually have the opportunity to be that bridge fully. We are scaffolding, and there's nothing wrong with scaffolding. But we have to move with a sense of urgency. As someone with very little time to think, I move with urgency for those that require my attention. I speak out and show up even in the darkest hours. And when there is concern, and when there is worry, I am always in the midst, fearlessly waiting, as you should as well, because the darkness around us, in the words of William Stafford, is deep. The answers we give, yes, no, maybe, should be clear. And we have to remember to hold each other tightly.
so may it be. Thanks for listening. You can find much more about humanism and what's happening at First Unitarian Society in Minneapolis by visiting our website at firstunitarian.org.